Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. I am Todd Miller, and I am happy to have my colleague, Melissa Del Bosque, here with me to banter a bit, but also to talk about uh, an article that Melissa just wrote um, for The New Yorker. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Todd Miller. I'm happy to happy to be here on the Border Chronicle, the uh, an awesome, awesome outlet. <laughs> it just so happens that you're part of the Border Chronicle, right? I, I recommend everybody <laughs> sign up. Um, you know, immediately, and listen, immediately, <laughs> and and also paid paid subscriptions are very, very much appreciated. It's very helpful to us. <laughs> But this is actually the first time that Melissa and I, and we've been at the Border Chronicle now for how long? Like a year and a half. Yeah, almost two years. We've been planning to do a podcast together, and we haven't done it yet. And here we are. We're doing this for the first time. We've been talking about this forever. We have. (laughs) In fact, we're thinking about having this as a regular episode where Melissa and I talk together, maybe go over some of the top news stories that are happening on the border. Um, we're, we're trying to expand in that direction. Hopefully that will, that will happen sometime soon. Yeah. I mean, the policies that are coming out right and left constantly all the time, it's hard to keep up with what exactly is happening. Yeah. My head's constantly spinning. All, all we know is asylum is still being dismantled. That is, that is true. And, and by the, by the time and the day that you hear this or the day that this you're hearing this is the day I believe that title 42 will be lifted. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we're going to have much, many things to discuss about what that means. Uh, good. And maybe bad. And you're going to be at the border security expo in El Paso. The day that title 42 is lifted. That is true. That's going to be interesting. And that's the this year, the Border Security Expo for people who are not aware of what that is. That's a convention, an annual convention that happens where CBP, Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Department of Homeland Security, go and have a big conference about what is happening on the border, what's going on, what's going to happen on the border, and a number of private companies are also invited to display their technologies and give kind of conferences and panels. So it'd be very, very interesting to be in El Paso next week, right when Title 42 is lifted, right when there's rumors that there will be some things happening on the border. Um, yeah, so look forward to, to hearing some reporting from, from there. Yeah, that's actually uh, how we how Todd and I met in person is that it, many years ago, it was a border security expo when it was held in, in Phoenix, right? And Todd got kicked out. They wouldn't let him in because he was too critical of the industry. And I think you had some students with you and you turned it into a teaching moment, which I thought was really clever because you were outside the halls of power and they would not let you in. And you were like, see, you know, this is this is how how power works and how it ex- excludes people when you have a critical voice. And I thought you really made a lemonade out of lemons that day. Yeah, we actually went up to 
register. I mean, they, in, in this case, they did, they denied me my media credentials. And so I went up with the students, one student and one documentary filmmaker and, um, tried to register anyhow. And they, uh, and the media coordinator, a lovely, lovely person. Yes, <laughs> Do you I remember re- her? Yeah, I remember her well. Yeah, very lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, she heard my name because we had gone back and forth over email. I told her over email that, oh, you're not going to give me my media credentials. Well, now you you are the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, But uh, I told her my name and she said, no. <laughs> she immediately started waving her hand, hands and saying no. But at that exact moment, the documentary filmmaker hit the play button or the record button with the, and they're still recording in that video. You can look at, you can look it up. Um, and, uh, and we, we have this great recording of us being escorted out of the border security expo. It was, I I just remember her beckoning the, the, the bouncer in front of the expo door. And he just, he did not want to come over and guide us out of there. He was, he came over so reluctantly and, and, and he, trudged us to the to the door and she followed us you know it was it was it was actually kind of an interesting scene um but that's where i'll be i i I got my media credentials uh i haven't been denied since that year i think that was 2015 yeah 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 yeah. very dramatic but uh but they are letting you in again so you will be inside i'll be inside yes (laughs) good yeah Anyhow, that um, is not our, well, it's good to talk about it, but it's not our topic of for today. Today, um, I wanted to interview Melissa um, because Melissa just wrote a very riveting article, very long page-turning article, I would say, page-turning. I couldn't, I when I read it, I couldn't stop reading it. It was like reading a very chilling, riveting, and good book that you just look forward to going back to reading. And that's what um, I would, how I would describe, or one way of describing Melissa's article for The New Yorker, um, looking at what's going on with journalists in Mexico, and especially journalists who have been killed. Um, I don't know, Melissa, do you want to maybe start by just setting the scene of that article, maybe discuss Miroslava Breach, what happened to her? I mean, who she was, what happened to her, and what what you know, basically what you're trying to say with her story in this article. Yeah. So, so the story came out in the New Yorker on April 17th, and it's called "The Bunker." Uh, I think it's got a different title online, uh, but it's about Miroslava Breach, who was a legendary investigative reporter from the state of Chihuahua uh, in Mexico, and a long, long time journalist. She worked for La Jornada, which is a big national publication, and then for the regional publication Norte de Juarez, um, and where she ran a political column and edited it called Don Don Mirone, which is. Uh, pretty famous political, biting political column in Chihuahua uh, that elected officials fear because they're often uh, made fun of, you know, and and their corruption is unmasked within the columns of of Don Mirone. Um, And so Miroslava um, 
was from the Sierra Tarahumara, which is uh, part of the Sierra Madre uh, in the Golden Triangle, where all of the marijuana and opium, a lot of it production happens. And so she was from a very small uh, mining town called Chinipas in Sierra, in the Sierra Tarahumara. And then she also uh, spent some time living in Sonora and in Baja. But her heart was really in the Sierra Tarahumara, which was where she was born. And she knew it very well. And she knew all the players. She knew who the mafia bosses were and, you know, how the drug industry worked within the Sierra. And uh, it's quite devastating for especially indigenous communities, the Satara Hamada, mostly who live, who live there. And, you know, they've been forcibly displaced at gunpoint and their communities taken and they've raised the forest to make way for these fields of marijuana and poppies. And it's primarily the uh, Sonora, I'm sorry, primarily the Sinaloa cartel that operates there. Right. And um, so, so she was working on stories, right? She was doing journalism that was making some connections of what was going on in the Sierra Tarumara around the big players. Is that correct? Yeah. So Miroslava was an investigative journalist. So she was, um, you know, making the connections between elected officials and narco-traffickers, which has become a growing problem in the last two decades. Um, in Mexico, they call it narco-politics or, or narco-politica, which is the synthesis between organized crime and uh, elected officials, where it's basically the cartels choose who will be the mayor, who will be the police chief. And this has been a real problem. Um, in Chihuahua and especially in the Sierra Tarahumara. And increasingly she started reporting on that because her community, Chinipas and, and relatives and family and friends were being impacted. You know, they were, there were gun battles, you know, people were displaced and forced to leave because it was too dangerous, kidnappings. And so she was starting to report on all that. Um, and what journalists in Mexico have had in, increasingly had to do because it's so dangerous is they've had to work in pools of journalists where they go out together to these sites and they, you know, collectively it's safer for them if they go together. And very few journalists go to the Sierra Tarahumara because it is so remote. It's, you know, eight or nine hours, I think, from Chihuahua City to drive to the mountain. And, um, you know, she would go alone often because I think, you know, since she grew up there, she felt comfortable. But as the years progressed and she was making these connections between organized crime and politics, it became increasingly difficult and dangerous for her. So she teamed up with another journalist named uh, Patricia Mayorga, who works for Possesso, which is also a, nat it's a national magazine, and Diario de Juarez, a daily in Ciudad Juarez. So they teamed up together and started doing this reporting on, um, in late 2015 or so is when they 
when they started working together and sort of tracking uh, one, especially one mafia family in particular, the Salazar family, who are from Chinipas, from where Miroslava grew up. And they work side by side with the Sinaloa cartel and they control a large area of the Sierra Tarahumara and then uh, into, into Sonora, the neighboring state of Sonora. So she started especially writing about the uh, what they were up to, you know, and how they were choosing the police chiefs and choosing the mayors in their territory. And then she also wrote about the Juarez cartel as well in a different part of the Sierra who was doing a similar thing. You know, one one Juarez cartel boss had like appointed his mother-in-law as a mayor of a town, you know, so there was all this cronyism going on and nepotism and um, really nothing resembling any kind of democracy. Like people in these communities don't get to choose who they want to be their elected official. And it, and so did um, did the Salazar family, or did the organized crime, or the or did they, or the politicians, or the mayors, did they get upset with the reporting that was being done about them by Miroslava and Patricia? Yeah. So as twenty sixteen progressed she started receiving death threats, Miroslava did. And, uh, well, they were, they weren't, I wouldn't say they were necessarily death threats. They were threats, you know, like I know where your kids go to school, you know, you need to, we don't like the tone of, of your stories. We, we don't, you know, we want, you need to stop. And, you know, Patricia was getting similar messages over the phone but definitely Miroslava was getting many more threats, and especially from Chinipas, where she was from, telling her to stop doing what she was doing, stop reporting, stop reporting on the Salazars, stop, you know, do not, you cannot set foot again into the Sierra Tarahumara, you know, she was warned, like, don't come back here. And then, did she, but she did, or did she continue reporting on the... Yeah, I mean, she continued. She continued reporting. Um, you know, she was very adamant about how she was not going to be intimidated. I mean, it was her hometown. You know, she cared about it and she wanted it to get out, and she wanted things to get better. So she hoped by, I think, by exposing these things that they would be, uh, you know, they would be dealt with. So. For many years, she had known Javier Corral, who at the same time was becoming the new governor of Chihuahua, and he was pledging to clean things up, you know, get rid of, uh, do away with corruption, do away with narcopolitics. Um, he was calling his, uh, his administration the new Don, you know, because they were going to start over again. And... She was really. They always have those names like that, don't they? Yeah. The new dawn. Some sort of branding. Yeah. Yeah. But she was very encouraged, you know, because she had known him for many years. He had been a journalist himself. Um, And, you know, most of the human rights defenders, I think, in the state were really encouraged. You know, they thought this is going to change. Things are going to turn around. And, 
you know, we're going to get a handle on the corruption and crack down on narcopolitics. But what ended up happening, so there was a particular mayor, Hugo Schultz of, of Chinipas, who had threatened Miroslava and said, you know, you can't come back into the Sierra. Uh, you know, the people here don't like the tone of your your stories. Was it a death threat that he he did? Well, I didn't I don't think it was a direct like, you know, they're gonna kill you, but it was like you, you know, you need to stop and, and you cannot come back here. So it was implied. And he was speaking on behalf of the Salazars. And so she, you know, she reported this, like, you know, the mayor, she wrote about it in in Don Mirone in the political column, you know, and she called him like a messenger of the narcos. So she outed him as being, you know, basically on the payroll of the Salazars. And um, what happened is Javier Corral ended up appoint, you know, a- allowing Hugo Schultz to be appointed, to be promoted to overseeing uh, indigenous, um, like for indigenous uh, sports programs, because he was a, a former PE instructor. So he, he, he got this promotion, like a state job, educational job. And that for her was sort of the beginning of the end, right? It's it's like, I you know, I told you this guy was a threat. He's threatening me. And now he's gotten this promotion and he's part of your cabinet. So, you know, that's when she started really losing faith in the new dawn and, and the idea that, that things were going to be turned around. And so, you know, people who were close to her say that she was... um feeling, you know, she, she tried, she got a quote to armor her SUV. Um, you know, she looked into the, her life insurance to make sure her two kids were protected. She was taking her death threats pretty seriously at this point. Yeah, she was, she was, I think, feeling fairly hopeless from what people say, uh, towards the end. And then on, uh, March 23rd, 2017, early in the morning, she was waiting for her son to drive him to school. And a gunman came up to her car and and shot eight times through her car. And and she died there at the scene in front of her son. And then her daughter, who was in the house, came out. Um, And so... Yeah, so she was she was murdered there in front of her house, and uh, and then that's when Javier Corral, then you know governor now says, you know we're gonna this is narco politics. It has to do with her work, and I will investigate it, and we will find justice. And this is going to be a national model for how to how to solve a journalist murder in Mexico. And as you know, I mean, Mexico has really one of the highest rates of, of murder journalists in the world. And, you know, very rarely are these are these cases ever solved. Uh, the impunity rate is like through the roof. So everybody was very like, OK, is this going to happen? Is he really is he really going to? solve this case you know and and i think there was hope there because they had been friends he was a governor he had this power that he could get to the bottom of things 
find out who had ordered her her murder, who was the intellectual author of the of the uh, assassination. Was do you think he was doing he was doing that all like he was really as a governor, he was really taking things into his own hands in good faith? Uh, You know, I I do. I do think so. I think um, I mean, obviously, this was a terrible thing for his administration. You know, this is a uh, a well-known journalist, well-respected. Her work is well-respected. They had been friends for years. Um, you know, he took it very personally, is what people say. And, you know, he wanted to to solve it. And, and he is a, a character who is, uh, likes to get involved in things, likes to be in the spotlight, likes to be in control. And so he took a very active role in the investigation to the extent where he was at the crime scene the day, you know, right after she was killed. Um, And within a couple of days, he went to a house where the suspect had, uh, you know, allegedly lived and he was there as they were searching the house and that's where they found key evidence for the inve- for the state's investigation you know they found a laptop and then uh some cell phones and they found uh a recording at this house of a phone call between Miroslava and the uh spokesperson for the Pan party which was the same party as uh Javier Corral's party. And uh, so this recording, he was trying to find out from Miroslava who her sources were for her story about Chinipas, because she had done a story, her and Patricia Mayorga, where they laid out in these various towns in the Sierra, like which police chiefs and which mayors had been appointed by which uh narco traffickers and so she exposed the salazars were going to appoint a relative as mayor and uh so because it was published in a national publication it put this pressure on the salazars where they had to retract their candidate and replace him with another one so the the pre and and the pan parties you know had this pressure on them the political parties to change their their candidates and so like thinking about um what happened after and particularly well i know a lot of things happened with an investigation right there's it went in all kinds of different directions but one one part of it was the the formation of a uh, i guess they're called the March 23rd collective yeah could you describe what that is and how that i'm curious too cuz thinking about how jur- other journalists especially in mexico you know responding to what you were just saying at such high rates of of journalists being killed uh doing their jobs um like how how are journalists in Mexico responding to these sorts of things? And can you describe what, what the March 23rd collective was doing and in, in, in terms of the, also the investigation that was happening around Miroslava? Right. So 
as this state investigation is progressing, um, at some point, you know, it's Christmas and Javier Corral. And this, this, this is 2017 still, or is it? Uh, she was, yeah, 2017. So it would have been December of 2017. Hmm. And uh, Javier Corral makes an announcement that they have found the gunman. And it's it's a, like a sort of mid-level sicario for the Salazars. And uh, somebody from his administration says there's nobody above him, this guy. Uh, they call him El Lari, El Larry. That's his, his nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, people are like, wait a minute, you know. Uh, journalists are like, well... Elati didn't uh, order her murder, you know, and and you have this recording of uh, a pan guy asking Miroslava, like, who are your sources? Because Hugo Schultz, who is the mayor of Chinipas, is is in trouble with the Salazars because they think he was the source for her information about their relative becoming uh the the mayor of the town so hugo schultz is like you know i need you to talk to miroslava i think this is what happened and and find out who her sources were so i can show the salazars that it wasn't me and um so you know then corral comes out with this thing of like it's just this it's this gunman he did it and and then they there was a story floated in a local publication that Eladi had done it as like a birthday gift for, uh, you know, Donna Don Salazar, who is the head of the Salazar clan. And then Crispin, his younger uh, brother runs it because Donna Don is in jail right now and has been for, for some years. Um, So that's when journalists were like, wait a minute. You know, we know that it goes much higher up than that. And we want to know if there are elected officials also involved because, you know, she was she was exposing all of these connections between these officials, these politicians and these, uh, tra- you know, drug trafficking synd- syndicates and um, which they didn't want out. So. Um, so uh, a collective of journalists came together from all over the country called the March 23rd Collective. They called themselves that after the, the date that Miroslava was murdered. And they started funneling into, Ch- into Chihuahua, into Chihuahua City. And they're coming from all over the country. All over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were also some foreign journalists, some American journalists involved as well. and. The way that they kicked it off was that the state had a hearing and the prosecutor basically read the entire investigative file into the record. So they were able to record all of that and figure out like, you know, where the state's investigation was, who they were talking to and, you know, what what leads they were pursuing. And so what the collective did is they started investigating the state's investigation 
to expose the holes that were in the investigation in the places that they were not investigating. For instance, they never went to Chinipas. They never went to the place where she was actually receiving all of the threats from and where she had exposed the Salazar family. So I think what they hope to do is to put pressure on the state and to force them to continue investigating and asking questions of people who were above Eladi the Sicario and find the actual intellectual author of the of the murder. And so they they kept so they were pretty persistent in looking and investigating the state's investigation. Um did they what like did what first of all it's interesting to hear that because journalists investigating a journalist's murder has to feel a little bit scary for the journalists doing that, right? Were there, was there, did they have a protocol in place or anything like that? Or were they, what kind of situation were they in as journalists looking into this and maybe even feeling like their own lives were, were put at risk by the doing this sort of journalism? Well, I mean, not long after Miroslava was killed, another very well-known journalist named Javier Valdez was also murdered in Sinaloa, and he had founded Rio Doce, which is a, a well-respected publication, and he had also written about narco-trafficking and elected officials, and he had been connecting the dots as well. And so after he was murdered, journalists in in Mexico, and you know, I spoke with Marcelo Turati, who's a very well-known investigative journalist in Mexico. She said, you know, it felt like journalism was dying in Mexico. We we needed, you know, like what are we gonna do, basically? Um so I think then journalists were like, how how do we, you know, how do we make sure that Miroslava's murder does not just end up with impunity and some low-level guy goes to jail and and that's all that happens? Um, and and so I think, you know, by taking this collective approach and also being anonymous, these journalists were anonymous for security reasons. Um, that way there would be greater safety in numbers and they could do more together collectively than they could on their own. How many were there? Uh, About 35 at least. And, you know, this is over a period of months. I mean, they, um, their project, they called it the Miroslava project, which was published in 2019 and it was a three part series and they ended up working with Forbidden Stories, which is a French outlet that puts out work of journalists who were uh, assassinated. Um, they worked on that, um, you know, the very well-known investigative journalist from from Malta who was who was murdered in a car bomb. They, you know, they finished her investigation, um, and uh, they formed after the Charlie Hebdo. Hebdo massacre, basically, to make sure that when you know journalists are under threat, they can still get their work out, and then also Bellingcat, which is a um, another investigative outlet from Europe, worked with them as well. 
and then um, CLEAP, which is short for the Latin American um, uh, Investigative Journalism Nonprofit uh, with Maria Teresa Ronderos, who's a very, very well-known Colombian investigative journalist. Uh, she also worked with them as well in helping them to get the work out, and they translated it into three languages. Um, because it was it was like, well, we're gonna if they put this work out and it, and it was um, published in many different publications around the world at the same time, uh, who was going to be the public face of it since the collective was anonymous. So Maria Teresa uh, functioned as the as the public face of of the Miroslava project, which is what they ended up calling this three part investigative project on Miroslava's death. And was that what happened with it with their after they published that the Miroslava project was it able to did it impact the investigation did it um and actually along those lines like what happened with the investigation did it well there was this really crazy attempted cover up made to pin the blame on other cartels and other people who who killed Miroslava and not the Salazars. So they were able to point to five other murders that were related to Miroslava's murder that were part of the cover-up. Uh, there was a like a karate teacher who uh was found murdered with the pistol that was supposedly the same pistol that was used on Miroslava. Uh, there was a pilot who was killed, um, shot through the window of his car, much like Miroslava was outside of a, an Italian restaurant. Um, you know, and they said, oh, well, he was the pilot who had flown Elari back to Chinipas. And you know, just this crazy uh, cover up, which they were able to put together and to show, you know, that they were connected to Miroslava's murder and that they were not, these murders were not investigated like hers were, not to, to the extent that her uh, murder was investigated by the state. And then at the same time, the family, Miroslava's family, was trying to get the, um, federal prosecutors to take over the case because they had lost faith in the state that they were not going to pursue it uh, any further up the ladder. And so there is a special prosecutor's office just for the murders of journalists because it's such a problem in Mexico now that there's a special office that's supposed to just prosecute these cases that involve murdered journalists. So they were finally able to exert enough pressure on the special prosecutor's office from the federal government to take the case from the state. And uh, once they did, they started pursuing it higher up the ladder and they ended up indicting Hugo Schultz, who is now in jail for eight years. Um, for them, for? For as an accomplice to the murder of Miroslava. And they've also put an arrest warrant out for Crispin Salazar, the, the uh, brother of Don Adan, 
the head of, of, the, of the Salazar family, saying that he is the intellectual author. Um, and they have a, an arrest warrant out for another man who drove the car to the site where she was killed. He drove the gunman. And both he and Crispin Salazar are allegedly still in Chinipas, and no federal authority has gone to arrest them. So they're still they're still free. So this it's still it's what 2017, so we're like six years later, six years later, that's still a case that's live in, yeah. in certain ways at least. Yeah, the case is still open because the intellectual author has not been arrested. Uh the driver of the uh, car that drove the gunman there has has not uh, been arrested. Um, Eladi got 50 years. Uh, Hugo Schultz got eight years. The actual- Was it Eladi that, was it proven that it was him that did the actual killing? Well, so he is like the chief of assassins. And so the actual gunman was found murdered in Sonora. So he was murdered, you know, a day or so before it was announced that Eladi was the mastermind of the assassination. So it's a very complex case with a really complicated cover-up that made it even more uh, opaque and, and really difficult to unravel. And so... The March 23 Collective did that. They unraveled it all, which is amazing. And they put pressure, you know, on the elected officials, on the federal uh, special prosecutor's office to keep pursuing this case. Um, I think by publishing it in in so many different venues and um, internationally, you know, it helped shine a light on Miroslava's case and to make sure that that ultimately she got justice. Yeah. Um, so to just to end or close our conversation here. Um, now I think of you doing the story, right. As a journalist yourself, and then writing about this super harrowing story of a journalist who is going, who is going and, you know, writing about things that ultimately led to her own demise, right? And I'm just wondering, like, as a journalist yourself, you know, what were some, do you, did you have any one personal reflections that you had while you're doing this story? And two, what do you think about your own journalism? And um, in regards, you know, in light of this and going beyond this. Yeah, well, you know, the horrible violence that's been happening in Mexico now has been going on for many years, unfortunately, and it really changed everything about the way that we do reporting at the border and in Mexico. And more than anything, it really changed things for Mexican journalists. And they've really been at the forefront of this and figuring out how to continue doing journalism and how to continue to do investigative journalism, which is incredibly dangerous now. Uh, and it, 
increasingly it's interesting because it's it's mostly women who are really leading the way in in investigative journalism in Mexico. You know, I mentioned Marcela Turati, um, Rocio Gallegos, you know, from La Verdad de Juarez, uh, Patricia Mayorga, she is still still working. Um, so, you know, Miroslava Breach, so, so many impressive journalists who are doing work there. And um, I did a particularly difficult piece in the Valle de Juarez in, I think it was 2015. I can't remember now what year it was. No, it might've been 2012 when uh, there was this brutal battle going on between the Sinaloa and the Juarez cartels and the military was there and they had set up a checkpoint in the town of Guadalupe, which is just across the river from Tornillo, Texas. I mean, you can see it from Texas. You can see the white church in Guadalupe. It's so close. And when the Sinaloa cartel came in with the military, we know that now, we suspected it back then. And with this recent trial of Inado Garcia Luna, um, they explicitly make that connection that, um, you know, the uh, Calderon administration was working with the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and that was the feeling at that time, too, was because the military were there. So why why did these murders continue? Why were people's houses being burned down and, and pillaged? And how could that happen if there's a military barracks, like literally right there in the town and there's a checkpoint? of military to get into the town. They know everybody goes in and out of that town. So, you know, what is going on? And so at that time, a lot of people were being targeted and killed and a lot of journalists were being killed and fleeing. And, um, and I remember very well, you know, uh, Veracruz was very bad too, that, that journalists were coming fleeing for their lives to El Paso. Um, and they were being jailed. They were being put in detention and because the U.S. government does not want to give them asylum. It's incredibly difficult, especially for Mexicans and Mexican journalists to get asylum in the United States, even if they're fleeing for their lives. And uh, there was one journalist from Veracruz whose entire family was killed, um, with the exception of him, because he wasn't there at the time. And he showed up at the Brownsville, uh, or no, this was in McAllen with his wife. And uh, at this time, um, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with the Spector family and Carlos Spector is a very um, important asylum lawyer, uh, especially in regards to Mexico. Like he's helped a lot of people get out and uh, get out of jail and, um, so he had started an organization called Mexicanos in Exilio to help uh, Mexicans who were fleeing for their lives and trying to get asylum, basically having to start over again in the U.S. And so through him, you know, we got a call. I was with his daughter, Alejandra, who I'm very good friends with. And uh, they were like, you know, can you go pick up Miguel and his wife? They literally, uh, you know, at the border, they don't know where to go. And we brought them back to Austin. And Ironically, there was a conference going on at that time of journalists from all over about what to do about all the Mexican, you know, journalists who were being targeted. And we walked right in there with Miguel, you know, and Miguel like got up on stage and like 
gave a testimony, you know, um, about what was happening because a lot of these journalists in, in regional smaller towns don't get access to these big nonprofits that have uh, money or resources where they can help journalists get out of the country and, you know, go into exile if they need to. Um, they're very isolated, you know, like Miguel was in, in Veracruz. And so I've just always felt, uh, you know, so much empathy and wanting to help any way that I could. Uh, the journalists who are fleeing for their lives and, you know, which continues to this day. And it's just such a shame that the, you know, the United States government, uh, instead of offering them asylum is putting them in jail, which is just a crime, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so I saw this story as a way to really elevate the work that, that Mexican journalists are doing within their country uh, against impunity and against corruption. And I think it's an example for the rest of the, the world because authoritarianism is rising globally, unfortunately. And, you know, journalists are the canary in the coal mine. They're targeted. They're one of the first groups that are targeted and that's happening. And so Mexico is showing a way of, you know, here's how you operate in just a, an incredibly difficult and, uh, you know, dangerous setting. So they're really like the, the, um, you know, this example of how you can continue to do investigative journalism and not, you know, get killed. I think your story really shows that you really bring that out in the story. It's not when you read it, when I, when I read the story, when I would say you could describe the story as not one is that's completely hopeless. There's, there's a lot of that sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, resistance um, that's in, in, in the piece, and especially among journalists and, and in very insp inspiring fashion. Um, so um, I think you did your job as you just described it quite well. And well, that's good to hear. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear. I think also, you know, journalists from Mexico City really wanted to support the journalists in Chihuahua, who were really the ones that were especially in danger and really afraid, you know, so it was a way of showing solidarity and and helping local reporters who are really the most isolated and need the most help. Yeah, it's inspiring. It's it's when all everything seems against you, then you have this kind of coming together and solidarity that maybe can move mountains <laughs> or at least attempt to. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and an example for us all. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate this conversation and the first of our border chronicle pair doing these conversations. Um, and thank you so much for your journalism in the story. It's a, it's um, a riveting and inspiring read. Yeah, uh, thank you. And I, I did do a post on it on the Border Chronicle with a link to the article, uh, which you can find it there on the Border Chronicle, or you can go directly to the New Yorker as well. Go to the Border Chronicle. <laughs> yeah, go to, go to the Border Chronicle. <laughs> go there first, and then you can go to the New Yorker. Yeah. Do us that favor. Okay, yes. Yeah.
<laughs> Listen to Todd. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Happy to do it. This is the Border Chronicle, reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Hannah Gaber. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a follow, drop a review, and recommend the show to a friend. It really is the best way to help people find us. You can read and listen to more local border reporting and support Todd and Melissa's independent journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.